He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Whitney. Uh, so, like I said, if you are visiting with us or um, if you've missed a couple weeks, we have begun a fall series uh, with this lovely fall weather we have uh, in the book of Colossians. Uh, the book of Colossians is a power-packed book. Paul writes the book of Colossians. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Colossians from prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial in Rome. He's literally shackled to another prison guard so that he can't escape, and he's pinning, writing all these letters to different churches throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Roman Empire. Um, Paul planted lots of churches, dozens of churches. He did not plant the church in Colossae. He planted a church that planted this church, and these are kind of his grandkids in the faith, and he's saying to his grandkids, uh, hey, I love you. I've never met you, but I love you, and here's what I long for you. Uh, I long that you would grow up in the faith. I long that you would mature in the faith. I want you to grow and be strengthened and, and be completed in the knowledge of who Jesus is. And so he, he says over and over again, I'm writing this to you to mature you. I'm writing this to you to mature you. And I want you to know more and more about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is a mystery. You'll never fully comprehend it or fully uh, pull out all the treasures from its depths. Um, but I want you to mature in this mystery, which is what we're calling our series on Colossians, maturing in the mystery of grace. And so every line, essentially every stanza in Colossians, essentially, is written, and we know this because Paul makes it very clear, I'm writing to mature you, so then every passage we walk through, every passage we read through should be seen through the lens of how does this help me grow? How does this help me mature? What does Paul want me to know as I mature in my faith? And here Paul says, do you want to know something that will be vital on your journey to maturity? Do you want to know something that will help you immensely as you grow into maturity? You've got to know who Jesus is. And that may sound elementary, that may sound simple, like, of course, if I call myself a Christian, I have to know who this Jesus guy is. Why, why would we need to know that? Why would we need to revisit that? Maybe that sounds condescending, like, let me tell you, class, now who Jesus is. And, and you might have some resistance to it to go, no, 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 Paul, we don't need you to waste any time telling us who Jesus is. That's, 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 that's a given, right? But I would say, and I think our experience would teach us, that in pretty much all of our human relationships, we typically end up being in relationship 
with the other person or with the other people through our own lenses. What I mean by that is, is in relationship, we project out our hopes, our wishes, our expectations, our imaginations, and our demands for that relationship. And so you'll, you especially know this if you've, if you've gotten married or been married, you know that it takes some time for you to go, oh, the person I married is maybe just um, not who I thought they were. Because it took time for me to learn that I was actually married to uh, uh, some projection of myself onto them. And I was loving what I hoped they were. I was loving what I expected them to be, but maybe they're not that. And the pain of this, when we impose our needs, we impose our wishes, we impose our shoulds, we should all over our relationships, that instead of being in a real relationship, we're in a relationship with a fantasy. We're in a relationship with something that's not real. Instead of letting the other person reveal who they truly are, we project over them what we hope they would be. We distort them in relationships, and it mars our interpersonal intimacy. I relate to people as I imagine them or as I want them to be, not as they truly are. We manipulate our world by demanding that it be what we imagine it, want, or prefer it should be. And in that environment, what we're really doing is we're setting ourselves up to be the one in charge. We're setting ourselves up to be the ruler and the autonomous one that everybody should be the way that I want them to be. And my spouse and my children and my coworkers and my roommates and my parents, they should all just be fitting into my system of relationships. And when they don't, here's what ends up happening. This is where the damage comes. This is how relationships get distorted and destroyed. We get bitter. You're not who I want you to be. You're not who I expected you to be. I had an image of you in my mind when we entered this relationship, and now you're not living up to that. And so we get angry and we get bitter because we want to be in charge of our life and our environments. And so I know that all that I just said was very hypothetical and you can't relate at all, and I'm the only one that does that. But just go with me for a second. Imagine with me for a second that we do this. Can you imagine the destruction that happens in our interpersonal relationships when we do this? If there's destruction and distortion and wreckage in our, in our human relationships, do you think we do that with God as well? Do you think we have images of him and, and expectations of him and demands of him and, and fantasies about who he is and what he should be like? Do you think it's possible that when he doesn't live up to our expectations and demands and our control of him, that we get angry and we get bitter. We imagine him to be what we want him to be. We imagine him to be what we need and desire him to be. And so if it's destructive in our human relationships, how much more destructive do you think it will be with God? Because I would wager that we do this with God more than anyone else. We have an image of him in our minds. And that image of him distorts our entire life. So do you think you have an image of God? Do you think you have a expectation or a demand of what he's supposed to be like for you and how he's going to handle situations and what he should be doing with his power? It's been said before that everyone's a theologian. That word theologian, theos from the Greek means God and logos means understanding or word. That is it possible that everyone has an understanding of God? Everyone's a theologian. And you might be sitting here saying, no, no, I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I don't even believe in God. And I would look at you and I would say, then you have a theology. <laughs> and your theology is, is that God doesn't exist. And that's okay, but please let's not be so naive in this room to imagine that wherever you place yourself on the religious spectrum, that you're not a theologian. You have an opinion, you have an expectation, you have an idea of who God is and what he's like, even if you would say you're apathetic towards it, or even if you would say he doesn't exist. That's a theology. 
So it would be prudent for us this morning to ask ourselves, what is our image of God? What is our knowledge of him? What is our theology? What is our view of him? Because our view of him informs almost everything we say, we feel, we think, and we do. Almost everything. And projections in relationships end up destroying relationships. So it may be helpful that regardless of what you think about God or I think about God, that we would at least give God the credit and the ability to reveal himself. Hey, I might have a projection of you, but let me let you show me who you are and then make a decision. Let me get a real image from you instead of casting an image onto you. And so with that, as a long introduction, we come to this section in Colossians 1. And if you're listening to the verses or following along with the verses that Whitney read for us, um, we're in Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 23. Uh, verses 9 through 20 of Colossians 1, we said this last week, is one giant run-on sentence. 220 words in the original Greek that Paul just sputters out in an ADD fashion. We covered about half of that run-on sentence last week, and now we're into the second half of this giant run-on sentence. So verses 15 through 20 is the completion of this run-on sentence from Paul. And almost every single word in verses 15 through 20 is all about Jesus. In fact, many scholars have noted that these five verses, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the second half of Paul's run-on sentence, is perhaps the most Christological passage in the entire New Testament, meaning this, everything we believe or everything the Bible has to say about Jesus is crammed into these five verses. Now, it's not the only place where what we believe about Jesus is mentioned, but just about our entire theology of Jesus can be summed up in these five crammed verses. It says almost everything there is to say about Jesus in these five verses. Many scholars think that these five verses were um, an original ancient Near East uh, hymn, a song of Jesus. Paul was writing song lyrics in his, in his jail cell. I don't know how it did in Roman radio, but he, he was writing a song of Jesus that was used in worship services, many people think. And, and trying, as, as a preacher, coming to the most Christological passage in the entire New Testament and then being asked to write one sermon about it is a little daunting and so the equivalent that, that I tried to express for my culture in front of me to try to let you into my brain is songwriters. Can you imagine trying to write one song to sum up everything and every, uh, every effect that the Beatles had on music? I was supposed to be like, no, we can't imagine that. It'd be so hard. <laughs> but my attempt to speak the language of the culture failed. So... Um, well, I'm not even going to try again. I was going to give something else. It's a lot, okay? No songwriter could do it. You can't do it. So please just be patient or at least be understanding that we're not going to cover everything in this passage because this is the most Christological passage in the entire New Testament, and we will not cover it in 30 minutes to two hours this morning. And so, <laughs> so let's see how Paul starts. Let's see what he's saying about Jesus, starting in verse 16. He's talking about Christ. For by him all things were made. In fact, will you throw this back up there? Is it up there? Yes, we're good? All right, find where, verse 16 where it starts. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. By him all things were created, all things were created through him, all things were created for him, all things, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This practically means that creation, the creation of the cosmos, was not only Jesus' idea, but he was the prime agent in making it happen. The universe is created by Jesus. Oh, and by the way, it was all created for him as his prize. It is established permanently in him, and in him all things hold together. When it says that all things hold together, that statement is actually in the perfect tense, hold together in the perfect tense, which in the Greek, ancient, ancient Greek actually means this, this once and for all completed action, meaning it might seem like things fall apart, it might seem like the world is disintegrating, but Jesus has already held it together. It's not going into disintegration. Chaos will not rule, because in him all things have been held together. Jesus is the active sustainer of the universe, and by his continuous sustaining activity, all things are being held together, or else all things would disintegrate. And that phrase, all things, it it sounds like the way we talk when we're searching for better words to use than just things. It's like, Paul, couldn't you have come up with a, that sounds so generic, all things hold together. He created all things so one scholar noted that a, a, a helpful understanding of that phrase in Greek would be to say, this is the totality. For by him, the totality was created. The, to- the totality was created through him. The totality was created for him. He is before the totality, and in him, the totality holds together. Do you realize what Paul just said about Jesus? This is a person who is not to be taken lightly. And I know that it's the cheesy Sunday school answer, but truly, according to this passage, Jesus really is the answer to every question. (laughs) Who's making the earth revolve around the sun as we speak? Jesus. Who's giving breath to every living thing right now? Jesus. Who created the stars and knows them all by name? Jesus. Who's going to heal this city from all of its poverty, racism, and sin? Jesus. Who's going to rule over all wars and tragedy and make all things new? Jesus. Who gives politicians their power currently? Jesus. Who is all of this for? Jesus. Who made Radnor Lake beautiful? Jesus. Who gave you the family that you have? Jesus. In him, the totality holds together. Another way that Paul says that in this passage is back up in verse 15. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over creation. That's important that we, we know the, the, um, the word that he chose to use there. He doesn't say he was the firstborn in creation or the firstborn of creation. It says he is the firstborn over creation. Meaning, Jesus stands in a position over his creation the way that a firstborn son in the ancient world stood over his family. He was the preeminent one. He was the prominent one. The eldest son, the firstborn, got double the inheritance. He was the one that would take over the family system when the father passed away. Jesus is over creation, and he spoke it into existence. And there was never a time when Jesus wasn't. Because, oh yeah, he invented time. And so there was never a time, as we know time, that Jesus didn't exist because the totality was made for him and by him. Jesus has a prominent, preeminent, superior place over the created order, and he holds the totality together. 
If what Paul just said about Jesus is true, let me just make this very simple. Jesus doesn't just come into your life to round it out and make it complete. Jesus is not a supplement. He's not a vitamin to give you all the things you don't normally get in your vitamin. Jesus can't be just your buddy. He's not your homeboy. He is not there to make your life just a little bit better. When it comes to allegiance to Jesus, there is no middle ground. It's either all or nothing. Did you hear what Paul just said about him? He is not someone that just comes into your life and you go, man, it'd be nice to get me a little bit of Jesus because maybe he'll make some of the stuff happen that I need to happen. That's not who he is. He is the preeminent one over all creation. And so this ruler and sustainer of creation, this Jesus that Paul is presenting to us, Paul here is not merely trying to throw Jesus' resume and accolades up for all people to see, partially. But first, Paul wants us to know what this Jesus, what this creator and sustainer of the totality has done and accomplished for the church. When Paul finishes this run-on sentence, he starts a new sentence, finally, in verse 21. Look at what he says. Verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Did Jesus create the universe? Yes. Does Jesus sustain the universe? Yes. Was it all for him? Yes. Does he hold all things together? Yes. But Paul's using all of those accolades, all those descriptions as a setup. He's using it so that you know this person, that when that person died, something happened. Something was radically shifted because that guy died. And he's trying to tell us, do you want to know this creator and sustainer of the universe, what the most creative display, what the most powerful display of his very self was? It was when he turned enemies into sons and daughters. That's why Paul has this giant setup, and then he goes, let me tell you what he did for you. And he couldn't have done that for you if he wasn't these things. Because if he was just a man, if he was just some religious leader, if he was just some demigod, if he was just some religious religion starter, If he was just trying to start a revolt against the Roman Empire, when he died, it might have been sad and tragic, but it wouldn't have accomplished anything. It wouldn't have been powerful. But Paul's saying, no, 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 no. His death did something because of who he was. It's because he's the creator and sustainer of the totality that his death actually did something. It actually altered reality. It shifted reality. And what was the greatest shift in that reality? That you who were once his enemies have been made his children. That's the display of his power. That's the language in verse 21 and 22. Paul says this, Once you were alienated, evil, and God's enemy, but now, because of the blood of that guy, because of the blood of the creator and sustainer of the totality, because of that, you're free. Something happened. Once this was true of you, but now this is true of you. And guess who did nothing to make that happen? You. You and I were aliens and enemies doing evil deeds. And then a transition, a shift, a status changed. God used his power to turn enemies into sons and daughters. This is massive and can only be done by the preeminent one. What was once true about you isn't true anymore if you belong to Jesus. But now, your truest identity, he says right there in verse 22, you're holy, you're blameless, You're above reproach. We just sang it. We're treasured and prized. We're treasured and prized, the body of Christ. Those that belong to Jesus are treasured and prized. And you didn't do any treasure worth making. 
You didn't, do, you didn't make yourself prize worthy. Jesus made that a reality for you because of who he is and what his death accomplished. That's what the death of the firstborn over all creation accomplished for you. He took your once and he turned it into your but now. And this is the benefit of having the sustainer of all things give up his life for you. He brought evil ones into his family and he called them his own. And that, what I just said, is what the church has for thousands of years called the gospel. It's the good news. It's the announcement of what Jesus accomplished. And, and we just, I hope you heard it. It's great news. But there's this subtle shift that happens many times when we come to Scripture. And I'm chief of this. I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody. Well, I am. I'm blaming all of us. But here's what, here's what we do. We can hear this massive statement. We can go, what does this say about me? Like, I want to make the Bible about me. I want to be the kind of the center point of what all this was about and what all this was for. But Paul just told you, all of this is not for us. It's for him. Now, he did some stuff that has massive benefits for us. But this passage, this Bible is not about us. There is good news for us, but that is not the primary focus of this passage. Remember, all things are for him. And with these accolades and with these opening words, Paul tells us what this passage is all about. Go back to the opening line of this section. Throw up the very, very first slide for me. It's verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Stop. This magnificent hymn, this song of Jesus, begins with the words asserting that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? It means that in the very nature and character of God, God's nature and God's character have been perfectly revealed in Jesus. In Jesus, the invisible has become visible. In Jesus, what is impossible to know about God has been made known. Jesus has revealed who God is. He is the image of the invisible. So, do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what the nature and character of God is like? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is revealing to the watching world what God is really like. So what is your image of God? Let's go back to the intro. What do you think of God? What is your uh, imagination? What is your demand of him? What is your expectation of him? And I'm not here to call anybody out and, and fix it. Here's what we should all be asking, though. Does my image of God match the image of God? Is my opinion or hopes and dreams of who God is, is that met in the real image of God, which is Jesus? Because God has revealed himself. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God revealed. That's what this whole section is about. Jesus is God's revelation of himself. In John chapter 1, one of the gospel accounts of the life of Christ, John chapter 1. We're told that no one has ever seen God, but then John the apostle writes this, but the Son of God, Jesus, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Do you want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Later on in John chapter 14, the Last Supper in the upper room, the disciples are with Jesus before he's going to give his life away, and Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, before you go, we're confused about what's going on, but before you go, just show us the Father. If you just show us the Father, we'll be okay. And Jesus says back to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You don't need to see the Father if you've seen me, because I am the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, 
we're told by the author of Hebrews that Jesus is the exact representation of the fullness of the Godhead. Jesus is the exact representation of God himself. That word, representation, is a Greek word, character, which is where we get the English word, character. That Jesus is the exact character of God. In Jesus, God is and has revealed himself to the world. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we should be asking this question. What did Jesus reveal to us about God? Better yet, if Paul is starting this whole section off by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what image of Jesus does Paul want to leave us with so that we might know who he really is and know who God really is? What is Paul trying to tell us that Jesus revealed about God? Now certainly, it's partially all of those accolades. He's the creator and sustainer of the totality. He holds it all together. He created it and he made it. It's all for him. That's part of it. But listen to where Paul goes when he closes out this run-on sentence of thought. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know God? Colossian church, do you want to know what God's like? We've got to look at Jesus. And here's what I want you to know about Jesus. Listen to how he closes this section. Verse 19. Can you throw that back up there? I don't know what slide verse 19 is on. So I want you to know I'm not making this up. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then Paul goes on this very long rant about declaring the accolades of who this Jesus is. But then he says, don't forget, as I'm closing out this thought, in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the image of the invisible. And then Paul starts talking about blood and a cross. This is where the madness and the, and the, the, the ludicrousy of what Paul is trying to do gets lost on, on some of us in the modern day, especially if we grew up in the church. Paul is closing this section talking about Jesus spilling blood. Blood? Did you hear who he is? Did you hear what he does? Did you hear who, what his nature is? Did you hear that he holds all things together? Did you hear that he is the creator of the totality and he made the totality and he stands above the totality? Sustainers of universes don't shed blood. Deities don't bleed for people. In fact, in the ancient world, in the context that Paul is writing this into, there were lots of deities to choose from, and none of those deities shed blood for people. All of those deities required bloodshed. All those deities required the people to be the ones shedding blood for the deity. But in Christianity, Paul's saying the real God, the true God, the sustainer of the totality, in Christianity, God does the bloodshedding. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. So, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know the real image of God, look at Jesus. And do you know the seminal, pinnacle, climactic moment in the life of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God? Do you know what event in the life of Jesus gets more airtime in Scripture than any other event in Jesus' life, including his birth and resurrection? It's neither of those. It's the cross, it's the crucifixion. So do this logical jump with me. It's not hard. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact character of God's nature. And the main event in that guy's life, 
was when he hung naked on crossbeams. Paul's saying the revelation of God is wrapped up in Jesus, and Jesus' primary event was a crucifixion. Or as Fleming Rutledge says, what is perhaps the most remarkable reality about the death of Jesus is that the creator of the universe is shown forth in this gruesome death. What kind of God do we have that would not only shed blood for his wrecked creation, that would not only use his power to transfer enemies and make them sons and daughters, but what kind of God do we have that would say to the world, all of my fullness dwells in Christ. He is the exact image of me. If you've seen him, you've seen me. And then to write the story to make his climactic moment of revelation be the one where he is spread eagle on crossbeams, bleeding out for the sins of the world. He's abandoned, he's covered in shame, he's suffocating, he's betrayed. It's as if God is saying to the world, behold, this is your king. This is the one for whom and by whom and through whom all things were made. This is the one who is before all things. This is the one who holds all things together. This is the image of the invisible God, and he chose to reveal himself in this way as one despised and rejected. Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer 500 years ago, called this the theology of the cross where he's saying, not everything there is to know about God can be known. He is, on some levels, utterly incomprehensible, but he is not unknowable, and he has made himself known. And the theologos, the knowledge of God, comes at Calvary. It comes at a cross, where he displayed and revealed himself for who he truly is. The crucifixion, Fleming Rutledge goes on to say, marks out the essential distinction between Christianity and all other world religions. All religion, we talked about this at the beginning, all religion stems from and is projected out of humanity's needs and wishes and desires. And no human being, collectively or individually, would have ever projected all of their hopes, all of their wishes, all of their longings, and all of their needs onto a crucified man. It makes no sense. There was a PBS uh, mini docu-series back in the 80s called The Christians. In that documentary, the narrator notes this, that the crucifixion is so familiar to us that it is hard to realize how unusual it is as an image of God. Christianity is the only major religion to have its central focus on the suffering and degradation of its God. Death on a cross was meant by its very nature to strip the victim of all of their dignity. Death on a cross was meant to rip them apart physically, yes, but it was also meant to cover the victim in shame. It was meant to degrade them. It was meant to wipe them off. It was meant to humiliate them. That's what crosses were used for. Do you know you can't name, even if you read every history book ever recorded, you can't name another crucified person other than Jesus? And that's the point. Because crucified people don't get remembered. That's part of what they were trying to do, is to erase them from the record books, is to dehumanize them to where they have no value. Erase them, make them forgettable, cover them in shame so that they go to the grave and their families see them and their communities see them going to the grave and no one will remember them. 
That's how the sustainer of all things chose to die. This shame of the cross is so lost on us in the modern day, not just because we've heard it, but because we don't have them, we don't see them. We can get close to the, the shame wrapped up in being a crucified man from a story in 1998 in Laramie, Wyoming. Laramie, Wyoming, there was a man named Matthew Shepard, a gay man named Matthew Shepard, who was beaten within an inch of his life, and then he was tied to a fence post and left for dead, abandoned. Eighteen hours later, in the frigid cold, a passerby walks by and sees this figure tied to a fence post and mistakes it for a scarecrow. But as he gets closer, he realizes this is not a scarecrow. This is a human being, stripped naked, freezing cold, and unconscious. He rushes him to the hospital where Matthew Shepard dies five days later without ever recovering consciousness. Matthew Shepard becomes this face for persecution and hate crimes against homosexuals in the late 90s. But the particular cruelty and method of death people wrote about for weeks to come, they were at a loss for words trying to put their finger on the heinous evil that took place. One reporter commented and said, you know what it was? It was like, it was this, it was like looking at the dangling of an animal, which goes back to this Old West practice where, uh, where farm owners and landowners would tie up a coyote or tie up a wolf that they, had, that they had killed and hang it dripping in blood from the fence post to warn against intruders, to warn them this is what happens to thieves and robbers if you come on our property. Matthew Shepard's murderers were trying to rob him of all dignity by treating him like an animal. They were literally trying to dehumanize him. But the strongest statement that came out of publication in the weeks following came from an article in the New York Times, and the journalist noted this. There is an incredible symbolism in Matthew being tied to a fence post. People have likened it to a scarecrow or an animal, but it sounded more like a crucifixion. that the closest comparison to the heinous evil done to this man that words could describe was to compare it to a crucifixion. And the one who holds all things together submitted to that. And in so doing, he says to the watching world, do you want to know what God's like? Do you want to know who he associates himself with? Do you want to know who he identifies with? Those covered in shame those that have been robbed of their dignity, those that have been outcast, forgotten, abandoned, betrayed, and dehumanized. Is that you? Because that's who God identifies with. And he's revealed that to us. He's revealed that to the world in the image of the invisible. That's who God is is. Paul saying to the Colossian church and to the church of Midtown, I know there are lots of options of gods and powers and deities to worship, but before you make any decisions, let me tell you about the God of the Bible. Let me tell you what he's like. Let me tell you who he came for. Let me tell you what his nature is. This is the exact representation of God's nature. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. This is who he is and what he's like. And so now, church, those that belong to Jesus, those that have identified in his death and been transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, those who have been made, who are former enemies but have been made children, do you know who the church is supposed to associate with? Do you know who the church is supposed to seek after, welcome in, do you know who the church is supposed to be a haven for? 
Paul makes this utterly clear in verse 18 in the middle of our passage. He says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. You can't separate a head from its body or it ceases to be alive. Heads don't go places that their bodies don't follow. Heads and bodies are inextricably tied together. And so who is the church to associate with, to identify with, to be a haven for? The marginalized, the abandoned, the weak, those covered in shame. The church follows its king, its head, into the new kingdom. They go as one unit now. The body goes where the head goes. And the king has shown us, has revealed to us who he is and what he's like. So let me ask you this before we close. Does that in any way offend you? That, that you would see in the most powerful display of who God is, the image of the invisible God, in the, in the images uh, pinnacle moment, he's revealing to you who he is and who he associates with. He's revealing to you who he came for. He's revealing to you what his nature is and what his heart is like. Do any of you guys feel better than everybody out there? Do any of you feel like, man, I might, I might have some problems, but I'm not evil. I'm not covered in shame. and I, I'm not dehumanized. Don't take that away from me because I'm worth something. And the cross would look at you and say, if you don't associate there, then maybe you've got the wrong image. If you don't associate there, then maybe we're not, maybe we're worshiping a fabrication. Maybe we're worshiping, worshiping an image of ourselves instead of who he's revealed himself to be. The church joins the king in bringing mercy to the world. The church now, because he is our head, Christ is the head of the church, the church now becomes the image of the invisible God to the world. That's how tied we are to the head. And God's saying, you want to know what, what I'm like? Look at Jesus. And now he looks at the church and he says, you want to know what Jesus is like? Look at the church. Because they're the ones who are to be welcoming in and standing near and, and loving on and, 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 and telling the, heralding the good news. I know you're an enemy, but you can become a son or a daughter. It looks like healing the sick. It looks like finding enemies and welcoming to the table. It looks a lot like the cross did in its original day where God hung among thieves. Let's pray. Jesus, we love to write stories about you. We love to have pictures of you and what you're like and who you came for. We love to draw lines of just how far your bloodshed would reach. But save us all from writing images of you and guide us, guide us to the image of the invisible God, Jesus, and his bloodshed for us. May we become a people that represents as ministers of reconciliation to the world. May we represent who our God is, what he's like, and what he's done. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.